Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. And we're here for the Invested Podcast, where we are learning how the best investors in the world think about investing. People, people who we call rule one style investors who are focused on the number one thing about investing being to not lose money when you put money into an asset. And there are very specific rules around that that we've been talking about for some time here with yes. my daughter, Danielle. That's true, Dad. <laughs> and, we, and we intro it a little differently every time, which I really enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> we just never know what we're going to come up with for an intro. But this time we're going to talk about um, one of my favorite investors to listen to is um, a man named Ray Dalio, who mm -hmm. runs a, 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 the largest pure hedge fund in the world. Oh, is it the largest? Yeah, the largest. $120 billion under management in one fund, or in a couple Jeez. of funds, I think. And, um, and yeah, with that... Yeah, it's got to be subdivided, right? It is a bit, but not much. I think he has two or three funds within that. Um, really? Mm-hmm. And he has a track record roughly 18% per year for 36 years. And, Crazy. I mean, way, no wonder he has the largest head fund in the world. Really interesting guy. He's a bow hunter who's traveled the world to hunt with a bow. He's a meditator for 40 years. Um, and he goes out and talks to people about meditation. He runs his fund with 1,500 employees compared to Buffett, who has 36. <laughs> all of whom are clerical, almost. So Dalio has an entirely different uh, structure to his investment uh, strategy and to the way they implement it. Um, mm. And he just finished a book called Principles, which I just got a copy of. It just came out in, in press. And yeah. it's both an autobiography for the first part of the book and then a the principles that he operated with and that has and he continues to operate with over these last many years. And these principles are extremely strongly implemented in Bridgewater, uh, the hedge fund. And the first one is something around like tell the truth. And they are radical truth tellers down there. And if they catch you hedging the truth, going around the truth, ducking the truth, you're gone. And so it's a it's some some people look at the way he runs things as a cult almost. But mm. it's hard to argue with his overall rate of return and his level of success. Um, he's not a Warren Buffett-style investor. He doesn't do the kind of investing we do where we wait in cash for an opportunity and we're just patient. But he follows the same basic premise. And that premise is, and this is a quote from Ray, to be a successful investor, you have to bet against the consensus and be right. Hmm. So he's kind of a find where the the path is going or find where the crowd is going and and go the other way. Exactly. And and of course we do the long, same thing. But he's not long-term value? No. Um, he is he does one of his funds is highly diversified called an all-weather fund and it's based on the theory that you can have um, assets like gold, bonds, real estate, commodities, stocks, and if you balance them so they all have the same level of risk, um, according to modern portfolio theory, risk is volatility. So uh -huh. if you get the volatility kind of all the same, meaning 
at the same level as the stock market is by leveraging bonds, by taking, by borrowing money to get bonds and by borrowing money to get gold, um, by adding leverage into the whole thing, you increase the risk. And leverage you, means that, that you borrow money. Yeah. So if you were able to borrow money, let's say for free and buy bonds with half of it uh, or with that money and put your money into the bond and you did it 50-50, you would effectively double the rate of return on your money. Right? As in 50% of my investment is my actual money and then I borrow the other the the money for the other 50% of the investment. Exactly. And if you didn't have and to pay an interest And then when I when I make money on the money I borrowed, I pay back the money I borrowed and I keep the you keep the whole uh, rest of it. The gains. Yeah, you keep the gains. So if you're getting a 3% interest rate by borrowing half the money with with no interest rate on it, which of course is problematic, but let's just to keep it simple. If you borrow the money with no interest rate on it, your interest rate on your 50% would go from three on the whole thing to six on your half. Got it. And if yeah. you could do it for a quarter of that and borrow 75% of it, you could drive it to 12. Which sounds so good until you don't make money on well, the borrowed money. I, well, you're just putting it in a bond and... So you're increasing your risks in one way of thinking by having leverage. But what Dalio noted is that if you borrowed money on a bond and you just hold the bond to expiration, the only way you can get into trouble is if the company who owes you the money doesn't pay it off. In other words, they go into bankruptcy. And so if you do your bonds on reasonably good companies, you're going to get paid off. So you don't have any interim risk of the bond rates going up and down because you don't care. You're just going to wait until mm. it expires. So it's something that's hard to implement. Um, Tony Robbins wrote about Ray Dalio in his book and uh, about trying to implement something similar. And they've kind of created a quasi all weather portfolio, although it doesn't use leverage and therefore it can't do what Ray's does, which is give you a market rate of return. So you just Wait, why, why is it hard to implement? Well, it's only hard to implement if you tried to use leverage. If you try oh. to borrow money, because you and I can't borrow money like a guy like Dalio can. You're talking about as an individual investor, like as me, yeah. it's hard for me to go and replicate what Bridgewater is doing. With totally this hard to do. Totally hard because you're not going to be able to borrow money for nothing. It's going to cost you a lot to borrow the money. Yeah. And, and Ray uses various kinds of financial instruments that give him leverage. Um, that are hard to replicate. I haven't seen anybody that says, oh yeah, here's how you'd go out and replicate Ray Dalio's all-weather portfolio. I haven't seen anybody at all, and it's quite famous. And to my knowledge, the, the closest that anybody said, well, do this, is Tony Robbins saying that he talked it over with Ray, and Ray agreed, if you do this, it's a decent return. But all they're doing essentially is taking down the rate of return of the market by having a lot more money in bonds. It's it's just really that's what happens. So Dalio. So is, even other hedge funds haven't followed this line of thinking, this line of investing. No, because Dalio's really only trying to get a market rate of return in this in this fund. What he's trying to do is something that most hedge funds don't really care about doing. Most most fund managers are looking very short term. What Dalio wanted to do is figure out where he could put his fortune of hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. So that it would automatically be managed. And if he died, he wouldn't have to worry about his family losing their money in a Great Depression. Oh, 
Or it's like nobody's making decisions about it. Right. It's just put in there and you leave it. And, oh, you left that part out. That's yeah, a nice feature. Yeah. It's really quite amazing. Um, the idea that he had was that let's back test this. <laughs> I'd like that one. <laughs> I know. He said, let's back test this in the Weimar Republic in Germany. How would this all weather portfolio have done if the if the dollar denominations part of the portfolio went to zero, the stock market went through the roof and then crashed and commodities went up and then crashed because of this huge inflation in Germany. And then let's see how it did in America in the Great Depression, where all of the asset prices crashed, right? Like, except the dollar and the dollar got stronger during the Depression. So he tested this against all kinds of, of different scenarios. And it is kind of the ultimate diversified portfolio, hmm. if you could figure so out we, how to implement it. Is the idea that you never really make, you know, much more than than what, like, well, like 5% beauty, or something like whatever no, no, sort of a standard? No. Ray could do that standing on his head. What he wanted was a portfolio that would perform about as well as the US stock market, which means in the seven to 9% a year range. And to get that with without it all being in the stock market and going through all this up and down is really hard to do. He didn't want it to go through a lot of ups and downs. He wanted the whole portfolio to kind of stay very low volatility. It doesn't go down a lot because the stock market crashes, because if the stock market crashes, maybe gold goes up or commodities go through the roof. Right. It just depends on what's happening in the different economic environments where you have inflation, deflation, uh, kinds of environments. And his genius is to figure out how to set that up so it doesn't have to be tweaked. Well, so that's what I'm asking, I think. So it sounds like he's trying to or is getting to the point where it offers this sort of uh medium return, which I wasn't really sure what that was, but you just said seven to 9%, yeah. which sounds pretty good to me. Yeah, And exactly. then, but, but the main feature is it also doesn't go down when there are these big Stock dips, in, dips in economies. Right. So you don't see a 50% drop that takes 10 years to get back. But you also don't see a 50% rise when things are going well, right? Precisely. It stays okay. steadily stated at around 9% or so. So that's hence quite, the all weather. Hence the all weather. It's quite And you don't have to do any like as in like if I bought into his fund for this, which you there's can. no, no right. Well, I mean, I can't buy into any funds. So. Well, no, you, you can't because it's huge. The amount of money you have to have to put the money in the fund. So, you know, he started it just for his own family. And then he found investors that wanted this who were big I mean, the person that this is for, like any other sort of diversification strategy, is mm -hmm. for a person that has a lot of assets already. They're just trying to protect them, right? Yeah. Almost yeah. all of our listeners are people who are looking to gain those assets. They're, that's your situation, right? Right. You, right. So an right. all-weather portfolio is only a theoretically wonderful idea when you have assets to lose that you don't want to lose. So... You know, what's recommended by most uh, financial advisors is that you take 100 minus your age, and that's the ratio between stocks and bonds in your overall portfolio. So if you're 50 years what? old. Yeah, you ever heard this? No. It oh, sounds yeah. like your BMI or something. 
it is sort of it's your financial BMI. And it's ah. it's a standardized thing that keeps financial advisors from having to think about stuff. And it's there's nothing wrong with it. It's probably pretty reasonable. It basically says that when you're young and you're 30 years old, you want to have 70% of your money in the stock market, right? 100 minus 30 gives you 70% of your money in the stock market because you have a lot okay. of time to go through 50% drops and recover from them. You're not going to need the money. Just let it sit there and 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 grow at a market rate of seven to nine percent. That's as best you can do, according to most financial advisors. And the but less- But there's some piece of information that I don't have in this. Well, the, because... the rest of it is going into bonds, which give a much lower rate of return. And but are they much must safer. be steadier or something. Oh, they're complete, okay. completely much safer. So as you get toward retirement, let's say you're at 60 now, you, do, you take 100 minus 60, now the stock market should be 40% of your portfolio and bonds rise to 60% of your portfolio. When you're 70, bonds should be 70% of your portfolio. 80, 80%. And that's because at that point, they assume you're just trying to protect your And you don't have uh, your assets. You don't have a decade to go through a drop in your in your assets. So you're you're becoming less and less aggressive and more and more safety oriented. But the problem is for most people, they don't have enough money to live in retirement with that sort of strategy with interest rates running in a 10 year bond at two and a half percent. I mean, it just, there's just no money. And so while this is all a great idea and it's wonderful if you have half a million dollars or $2 million, it's not so wonderful if you're 50 years old and you have $50,000, then it's horrible. Oh. It just dooms you to a disaster. See right. what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty much the constant refrain of the typical advice isn't going to help those of us who who need more. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> who need more than what we have. Precisely. <laughs> and and I'm glad that those things are like exist out there for people who have done a good job of maybe started doing this investing earlier. Yeah. And uh, and have a decent nest egg and and really do just want to protect it. I mean, I. I think that's awesome. Um, but yeah, that's not. But people not pay my a situation. price. They pay a price for that. The price you pay is you get a job, you keep that job, you keep steady employment, you keep putting money away, you postpone a lot of the joy of life that you could yeah. enjoy by having money to spend. You you you're saving it for your kids and you're saving it for your retirement. And unfortunately, some people never get to that retirement you die before you're 65 years old, maybe you never really, you know, you raised your kids, but maybe you never really did anything you wanted to do. And so yeah. it's hard. Your generation is looking at this and just going, no, I don't think so. I don't think I want to do it like that. You know, I just was talking to a friend of mine um, and somehow we got onto her parents and she said her dad was a, he's retired now and he was a manager we're a pretty high-level manager at a major technology company that we all know, and uh, and she just said like he he got to the point where his stock options vested, like he could cash out all of his options, and he retired the next day. And I said, oh my gosh, that's crazy! Like most people tend to stay on. And she said he was the only person at his level of managers, probably like let's say seven to eight people who survived being a manager at this wow. company. 
as in, and I said, everybody else died. And she said, well, not exactly, but they either left for health reasons, like they had a heart attack and had to leave for something less stressful, or they had so much stress, they just couldn't like stay there anymore and they went to a different job. Or yes, like a couple of them literally died from stress-related illnesses. And he was the only one who made it out on the day his options vested. And he has kids and everything, obviously. And he just, he was like, done, I'm out. And he literally bought a boat and is like hanging out. <laughs> <laughs> like no stressful activities for him. He made it. And, he made uh, it to the end. Yeah. The and it just really struck me because you hear these stories about everybody my age, like we're all so stressed out, but it's everybody. I mean, it's everybody's like in these crazy jobs and living crazy lives and having stressful family situations and money problems and like we're all dealing with it. It doesn't matter how old you are. And I just thought that was that really struck me that it, it's not just it's not just people who are trying to make it. It's like even once you like from the outside, you would say he had made it. Right. Yeah. But from the inside, not so much. Well, in the financial world, you see a lot of that stress and anxiety in the kinds of investment assets that people are looking at right now. One mm -hmm. of which is gold and another of which is Bitcoin, both mm -hmm. of which represent uh, anxiety shelters, if you will, for people to put dollars into. And, That's true. Somebody you know, else just mentioned Bitcoins to me, too. And I honestly do not understand what they are. I need to I need to look into it. Can we talk about gold first? Because that's also something that a lot of people are trying to figure out. Well, Dalio, Dalio actually strongly recommends we all have five to 10% of our portfolio in gold. Why is that? Because it's a diversification against other, uh, virtually all other assets. It's its own thing um, that As diversifies in, like, against the, it's a diversification. Against, when stocks go down, gold well, a, doesn't go down. No, it's not even like that. It's a diversification against the entire monetary system that we use in the world. So <laughs> this is a it, it it is basically saying that you know our monetary system, which was created out of a meeting after World War II called Bretton Woods, um, to be based internationally on the dollar as the reserve currency, ref, is as good as the dollar. And so if the dollar fails and it's in the hands of men and men can do things for reasons that are short term right and long term wrong and they can destroy currency. And the, what Dolly was basically knows, because he's such a good historian, is that virtually every currency in the world has destroyed itself. Historically, there aren't I don't think there are any that have not been destroyed at one time or another. Virtually every single country in the world, with the exception of the United States, and we're only a couple hundred years old, right? And obviously, uh, like Singapore, which is fairly young and so on. So there are young examples of company, countries which have not gone bankrupt on their currency. But actually, you know what? He would argue that the Ameri America did go bankrupt on its currency. We did it in 1934 when we refused to exchange our currency for gold. We stopped doing the exchange. And, and are you in, just inventing that or no. is this something he's written somewhere? No, no. I, I mean, I can't put words in his mouth, but I, I, um, I, I believe I read that that uh, Dalio mentioned that even the United States has had 
currency devaluation. We did it in 1934, I think, when FDR called in all the gold. He made it illegal to own gold and then converted the value of exchange of gold for dollars from $20 to 34, which is a gigantic devaluation of the currency. And then Nixon did it again by taking us off the gold standard in the early 1970s, which resulted in a massive devaluation of the dollar against gold. So in both cases, if you'd been holding gold, you'd been better off. But FDR wouldn't let you hold it. He made it illegal to hold it. And Nixon uh, basically made the conversion and gold went to $800 an ounce. Just boom, right, from, from 34. So huge devaluation. So I guess what Dalio is saying is that uh, gold is just a sensible diversification away from the overall monetary policy. And it will act differently than any of your other assets. Now, how it acts, I mean, man, all he could really say is it's going to act differently. It's going to go typically differently than dollars. If dollars are going, if you can buy less and less with your dollars, gold will become more and more valuable relative mm -hmm. to that currency. And that's, in fact, what's happened, right? I mean, right I, now. I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, gold used to be $20 an ounce back in 1900. Um, and today it's... <laughs> It's a thousand dollars an ounce, so the buying yeah, power. Well, a penny in 1900 is pretty different than a penny today, also. But exactly, but gold held its value. You see what I'm saying? In other words, if you had said, "Okay, you have a choice between twenty dollars in cash currency in U.S. dollars in 1900, or a twenty-dollar gold piece, which is one ounce of gold." and you chose the dollars, you were wrong on an order of magnitude. Yeah. yeah. So that's what he, Dalio is saying, is that you don't know where this dollar currency is going to go because it depends on human beings. It could do very well or it could do very badly. But gold will be, it'll do something different than that. And that's the whole idea of having it in a portfolio, is it's going to have a non-correlation to the dollar. Hmm. Interested in that actually? I should look that up to see, like counting inflation, what the change in gold prices have been. Yeah, it's really fun. If you if you look it up, you'll find so. you you'll find a couple thousand years of of gold price changes, um, and some people say, well, what you should do is look at what gold will buy in terms of um, clothing or food, right? So one way of kind of looking at the As value in like of gold. one ounce of gold will buy, a man you know, suit. if you converted it, will buy these things. A quality man suit. Okay. So one ounce of gold in Roman Empire would buy a quality man's clothing outfit. And one, thousand, uh, one ounce of gold today is $1,000, which will buy a quality man's outfit. True. There you go. There you go. Something like that. So <laughs> we're trying to compare apples to value at all, actually. But that's the whole point, right? Whereas, you know, the dollar right. has deteriorated, you know, some huge percentage of its value just in the yeah. last hundred years. So yeah. Dahlia was talking about gold in that way. And in that conversation comes the idea of Bitcoin, which is out to replace gold. Okay, but wait, I have a gold question. Oh. Are you ready? Yes. Um... This is, I, I hate saying something's a dumb question because I think there are no dumb questions on this podcast, but 
This might be a dumb question, but well, that, that's partly like, because you're asking all the dumb questions. So you don't want to think any of your questions are dumb. And I agree right. you shouldn't think that I don't dumb. firmly. Right. So here it is. <laughs> when you buy gold, since I've never done it, when you buy gold, like, do you buy like, like, where do you buy it from? Like, do you buy it from like an American commodities exchange? And then if yes, are you buying no. like American gold somewhere? Or no. is there like a worldwide gold no. purchasing situation? No. no, no. There are merchants that deal in gold coins, gold and silver coins and silver bars. And they're in every town. They're in every small town. Um, no, no, no. I'm not talking about like the cash for gold people. <laughs> I'm talking about like when you say go buy gold and I like right. open up my brokerage account right. and I like type in something. Buy what gold. I even type in? Oh, well, if you're going to do it through your brokerage account, what you'd probably do but is But isn't buy... that what you're talking about when you talk about like buying gold as an investment? That's actually a really good question because you're you can't. There are different See, ways I to buy gold. See, I told you it wasn't a stupid See, it was question. It's definitely not a stupid question. There's various ways to buy gold, and when you do it through your brokerage account, the most common way to do it is to buy an exchange traded fund called GLD that itself will go acquire gold and put it in storage for all the money you give it. So if you give it a hundred thousand oh. dollars. They're going to go get $100,000 of gold in the market and store it. So, And is that an American exchange traded fund? Yes. Like, are they based in the U.S.? Yes. I guess I'm curious, like, because gold is supposed to be this, uh, this sort of currency-less, borderless item. Like, how... I don't know. Like when you buy it, are you sort of buying American gold? Or are you buying like gold from who knows where? I don't know. Like, how well, that's it... precisely the question, right? And in other words, if gold is this hedge against the collapse of the dollar, then if the dollar is collapsing, you know you're going to be in an environment of a great deal of fear. So some people just say, well, gold is a fear hedge. Gold is uh -huh. what you get. Gold goes up when there's fear. Okay, so obviously a collapsing dollar would create a lot of fear. So gold going up and everything is great as long as there's still a stock market to cash out in to get the benefit of being correct about gold going up. And that's the question about the ETFs. If things are really hitting the fan, how sure are you that you're going to actually get be able to get your hands on the value of that gold that you have in the ETF? How about yeah. ah, they completely collapse? But I think that's why my question, I think, yeah, like you're making my thinking more clear here because that's, I think that's why I have the question. Because let's say if, uh, I don't know, like the government of the UK collapses, but the US is fine or like whatever, Singapore right. collapses, but the US is fine. Like, does my gold that I bought have some relationship to those other those other countries? Sure, because those things collapsing will create fear that will cause gold go to go up, which is a worldwide uh, quasi substitute for a currency. And we can talk about what a currency is anytime. But gold goes up and you get the benefit of that as long as there is a market functioning. 
Because, I'm talking about the actual goal. Right, but see, you don't have so your hands on the like actual goal. So it sounded like what you were saying. What sounded like what you were saying before is that if you buy GLD, this exchange traded fund, they actually purchase gold and put it somewhere in America. Yeah, they got so it. So therefore, in, in yeah, the U.S. collapsing would influence would would affect that that yeah. gold bank vault somewhere. Well, what would but affect Singapore is, collapsing would not affect that. Right, Singapore collapsing wouldn't affect it. But a market collapse in America would affect it dramatically. I mean, you would have this IOU from a company you, that won't answer their telephone. So great, you own right. your share of a chunk of gold in some vault. But all of a sudden, you know, there's an EMP strike from North Korea and all of the phone systems go out. There is no market. You can't buy food with a, ch a chit from an ETF. What are you going to do? Right. So, I so think that that's why the these corn shops exist. And there, then there are national groups that will send you gold. They will put it into, you know, they'll, they'll literally send you boxes of gold. But I think or, that the answer to my question is that, yes, borders matter even when buying gold. Yeah, borders matter. On, on, on the market. For sure, depending on how you're holding the gold, right? So, for example, let's say United States stays um, solid, but borders are collapsing all over the world in the third world. If you own gold in the United States, all that's happening is that the value of that gold is going up with the fear in the world. Right mm -hmm. now, if the if the borders collapse in America and and there are no markets, then owning physical gold is a way to preserve your wealth and carry. I it understand forward. that. I'm okay. not talking about physical gold. Okay, at but all. I think you have to talk about physical gold. When you're looking at gold as a diversification, you really have to ask yourself, have I really diversified if if I'm not going to be able to collect on my correct Well, exactly. Assumption? Exactly. I think that's I think that's exactly right. That's what I'm trying to get at is like when okay, so I'm here I am. I'm sitting here. I say to myself, gold sounds awesome. I'm going to buy some, Yeah. but I'm not going to go buy a stack of gold coins because what I want to do is because I have so much money, I want to spend a million dollars on gold and a million dollars of gold won't fit in my house. So a million dollars of gold, virtually. a million dollars of gold will fit rather nicely in your suitcase. Okay. So sorry about that. My point it will is, actually fit in your house. I'm going to buy it just like I would buy a share of stock using my brokerage. Which is then the problematic. next question is that's that's my my point is this: it's problematic. If you had done that in Germany in 1920, your ETF might have collapsed. The government might have stolen the gold because they could run over there and just lock it all up and tell you, well, we'll owe you some gold someday, uh -huh. okay? And meanwhile, your currency's worthless. So now your hedge, which was to have an alternate to your currency that would do well if your currency collapsed, now your hedge was only theoretical. In the practical world, it's no good at all because you can't spend it to eat. You see yeah. what I'm saying? I do. Okay. I do. So that brings us to it's very... almost like you're preempting. It's almost like you're preempting my question, because what you're saying is 
your question doesn't matter because I don't think that you should buy it virtually. If you're using it as a, a hedge against all the other aspects of your portfolio, then you would want that hedge to be fully useful. And putting it in a position where part of the system has to keep working in order for you to use that hedge yeah. might be problematic. Which is why people invented Bitcoin, actually, is they wanted to use a, a, a cryptocurrency that would never be accessible by a government. So while our government could go steal the money from the ETF and federal, you know, uh, Franklin Roosevelt could force you to turn in your gold. The, the Bitcoin idea was a currency which a government could not influence. Mm. But and we'll talk about Bitcoin later, but at some other time. But basically, Jamie Dimon at JP Morgan says that Bitcoin is a complete fraud and a scam. And he would fire anybody in his organization that would put any money into Bitcoin. Um, and, and Ray Dalio is a little nicer about it. He said, basically, there's two purposes of a currency. One is to be able to, uh, to exchange for other things of value. And second is a storehouse of wealth. And Bitcoin is very problematic in both of those cases. It's hard to spend it. And it is very questionable buying Bitcoin at $5,000 a coin, whether you're really storing wealth or not. Or no. whether you're just speculating. So we'll have to talk about so that another time. Yeah, let's talk more about virtual uh, systems of currency replacement because it sounds like you actually have these opinions about gold and about Bitcoin, which uh, are, I suppose, seem normal to you, but are kind of a big deal. Yeah, it's, let's talk about Bitcoin and let's talk about what China just did to it. Uh, for all of you out there who are are fans of, of this kind of virtual currency. It's uh, It's got some issues. So let's talk okay. about that another time. We'll talk about that next time. Okay, cool. I guess All right. time to go play. See ya. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Head over to investedpodcast.com for our show notes and a special offer on how the podcast listeners can attend my three-day transformational investing workshop for free where we just teach the heck out of you for three straight days we don't sell anything and we get you a scholarship to come to it for free so come on over there and take a look at that and by the way as our lawyers want me to say everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or danielle's opinion my opinion's right and is not to be taken as investing advice because i am not your investment advisor nor have i considered your personal situation as your fiduciary so this podcast is just for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it. So until next time, time to go play.